What's happening, everybody? This is the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. Today is Wednesday, Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. And I'm thrilled today to have on the podcast two guests. Um, These are two guys who wrote a book uh, on the parables uh, of Jesus. And since this weekend at Riverview, the church where I have the privilege to serve as one of the pastors, we're launching into a series on the parables. I thought it'd be great to have these guys on to talk about them a little bit. And so these guys, um, I'll let them introduce themselves here in a minute. But the first guy um, is a, a guy by the name of Daniel Emery Price. And he might be one of the only people that I know that uses both his first and middle name, just like I do, um, in in his writing and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing that the reasons are different because the reason that I do it is because Daniel Price is a, is a pretty common name. So, uh, if people were trying to find stuff that I did and they just Googled Daniel Price, that's there's a lot of competition for that top Google spot. But uh, you Google Daniel Emery Price, and man, I I dominate that Google search. And so that's <laughs> that's the main reason. Uh, now I'm I'm sure that's not the reason you do it because you know I I you're both your first and last name not not that common. A true story. If you if you um, do a search, and, and granted, this may have changed in recent months, but the last time I checked, I am the only Noel Hakenen on the planet, as far as I know. Um, the main reason I do it is because no one can spell my last name. It's usually Heineken or some kind of bastardization of my actual name comes out. And so Noel Jesse is easy for people to find. Um, and so it is. It's about making it Googleable in a sense, and so people can actually spell it. But there's no way anyone can pronounce or spell my last yeah, name. Yeah, I, I had someone actually ask me the other day, like, Derek, why do you think Michael W. Smith uses the W? And I was like, I know exactly why he uses the W, because his name is yeah, Michael his Smith. his freaking name is Mike Smith. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, like, three Michael Smiths. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, Eric, you probably have uh, common misspellings just because your first name has a sneaky letter in it, especially in American vernacular. It, it does. The, um, the I is silent. Um, also, <laughs> it's a E-R-I-C-K. Uh, my parents, when I've asked them why you added, why they added one extra letter that really was totally unnecessary, I would have liked to believe that it was because of some cultural background or some ancestral reason. No, they literally just said, we just wanted it to be different. And so that's as much as I've gotten. I'm against this unique names, like the spelling thing. I, my daughter has... The, her classroom, her name is Anna. I think she's the only Anna in the school because every parent's trying to be so unique that the like the most unique name you could give your kid now is like John. That's what I think. Well, my 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 niece's <laughs> name is Anna, and my sister didn't want her to have anybody pronounce it Anna, so it's spelled A H N A. Well, you know this makes sense. This does make sense, but uh, you know at least the pronunciation makes mine. Mine does not have any sense to it. It does not help or add to the pronunciation. Well, what it does for me is I, I see it next to Sorensen, and it does make it feel vaguely Nordic to have that extra well, K on there. Yeah, that that is true, and I think there actually are people that spell it that way throughout the world. I don't. Again, I don't know why. I've never done any research into it, but and my background as far as vaguely Nordic 
is supposedly Danish, although growing up as a California kid, a Southern California kid, I had no connection to my ancestral roots at all, so I really don't know how much Dane I am. But supposedly, that's my heritage. So you you go from California to New York. Was it because you were going there to plant a church, or was it because you just loved New York? I mean, why New York? Well, not initially. Um, initially, I was in Southern California. I'd been a pastor of a church in uh, Fontana, California for just under six years. And then I received a call to serve a church in Staten Island, New York, and uh, moved there for that reason initially. And then after a few years in Staten Island, I was asked by the leadership of my denomination to plant a church in Manhattan. And so I didn't move out there initially to plant. I did move out there just to pastor a church. Uh, but that's that's kind of how that started. And we've been out here on the East Coast now for basically half my ministry career for the last six, seven years. Now, Daniel, you're in Arkansas. Have you always been an Arkansonian? Arkansonator? I don't know what Arkansas. they call them. Yeah. Oh, that, that yeah. one? An Arkansan? <laughs> yeah, there was actually a thing. They had a vote where uh, they were trying to figure out if we wanted to be called Arkansans or Arkansawyers. And uh, Arkansans won by a long time. What about Arkansaurus? Oh, I'm so glad that uh, it did. Arkansaurus. Yeah, yeah, that would, yeah. Arkansaurus would have been good, but Arkansaurier, not, uh, that's not good. Yeah, so I live in the very northwest corner of Arkansas, which is uh, referred to as Northwest Arkansas or also known as the coolest uh, name that you can have for an area, which is NWA. That's where I live, in the NWA. Uh, Come on. No one would have thought NWA is in the middle of Arkansas. That's right, dude. Uh, dude, we just had some people here that are very cultured that, that were very confused about where I live. And they came and visited and they said, man, this place is like the Brooklyn of the South. And I was like, that's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I I think it's more like the Compton of the South. If, if we're going to continue with the yeah, NWA well, reference. Eric, you've been here. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you switched over. You switched over to Beastie Boys partway yeah. through that. No, no. NWA is a beautiful place. I, I mean, yeah. it is. It so, is genuinely yeah, a really so, nice place. Uh, I'm proud. Like where I live is most famous for being the, the headquarters of Walmart. So the Walmart home office is here and this is where Walmart started. So um, we are uh, we are proud to have the largest, uh, you know, the largest employer uh in the country here so we have that uh tons of jobs so there's no like zero unemployment where i live uh so we have the world's largest retailer and then uh we also have jb hunt headquartered here so the world's largest trucking company and we have tyson's food the largest poultry distributor and those are those are three guys that got together and just decided to create a massive empire right in the middle you know right in the northwest corner of arkansas so uh, that's where I live. Um, I wasn't born here or anything, but my parents did move here. And I left, and I was in Seattle for a while, and I was in uh, Phoenix for a while. And uh, I came back because it's the, the best-kept secret in the country. So I ended up moving back. So we all first met, if I remember correctly, at a Christ Hold Fast conference in Florida, I think. Yeah. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that's the case or not, but you're both nodding. So I think that's probably the case. Without getting into the nitty gritty details, kind of how um, Christ Hold Fast came to be, because I know it's affiliated with 1517, which is uh, a, a Lutheran uh, tribe, and you guys are both Lutheran as well, I believe, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Are you Lutheran, Correct. Eric? Yep. Yeah, yeah, I thought you were. So, um, and that Christ Hold Fast is somehow connected. How did that happen? And is the desire for it to be a Lutheran thing, or is the desire for it to be? Um, a broader institution or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the main the main idea is that uh, is to promote sort of the theology of the Reformation 
uh, in general. So uh, it's it's the theology that came out of the Protestant Reformation uh, initially. That's what we're trying to promote because I would argue, and I think that you'd agree, Noel, that the there's there is we have lost a lot of what of what we reclaimed. And so uh, I mean, if you just start with the solas. I would say that the solas are do not are not a predominating um, element of most preaching in evangelicalism. It, they're not necessarily preaching uh, grace alone, faith alone, for the sake of Christ alone. You might get some scripture alone, at least in theory, uh, on paper. It'll be in there, you know. Uh, uh, and certainly, it seems like a lot of stuff is about the glory of man and not the glory of God alone. So. Uh, yeah, so the, really the monergistic nature of the thought that came out of the out of the Reformation, this Christ for you, saving you all by himself, apart from apart from not only your works, but apart from your even desire to be saved, that sort of language. And and Christ's ability, Christ will fast is the idea behind that name is even that, that Christ is gonna actually hold fast to you as well. He's gonna he's actually going to complete your salvation and get you all the way home. It was the name Christ Hold Fast that caused me to say, all right, I'm going to check this out. Because I, 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 I think you're right. That whole idea, even within, so I tend to run in more Calvinist tribes, but I'm probably the most Lutheran Calvinist you'll ever meet, um, especially as it relates to sanctification mm-hmm. issues. Um, uh, in, in, even in my tribe, it, it is a lot of, hey, let's make much of Jesus and then here's the stuff you got to do. Let's make a bunch of Jesus um, by doing we, these things. <laughs> that's right. And it's a slide into um, that sort of theology. And that idea just grabbed a hold of me, that whole idea of Christ hold fast. Uh, it, 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 it was moving, just that name alone. And so it caused me to say, okay, I'm going to check this out. Eric, how did you get involved in those circles? So uh, Dan and I had met, I mean, we met uh, through Liberate. We were mutually invited down to, at the time, something called the Liberate Institute that they were sort of piloting for uh, potential contributors and contributors that were already on board. And so they brought me down there. Dan was there. Dan and I had, had already connected a little bit over Twitter because I could tell, I mean, we both could tell that we had similar thought and very similar ideas about uh, not just theology, but also a desire to actually propagate this theology outside of our local context and outside of our Lutheran world. Uh, Lutherans, uh, I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school here, have not always been great at evangelizing and actually propagating their theology. It tends to be that Lutherans guard their theology and hide it under a basket as good as they can. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and there's reasons for that, historically speaking, but Dan and I both, I think, initially kind of began to bond over this this uh, u- unity in that front, that we wanted to get this theology out because we felt like it was a really, uh, it was the best kept secret around. You know, it was this liberating gospel that we got to share with people. Uh, and so when we, when, when we found ourselves down at the Liberate Institute together, we immediately, uh, you know, kind of clicked and started hanging out. And it really wasn't long after that. I mean, I was contributing to Liberate. Liberate went belly up, and then I became, you know, a contributor to Christ Hold Fast when, when that started to take off. And then it was just a matter of, I mean, we were doing, Dan and I started doing all sorts of things together, speaking at conferences together, um, and, you know, recording our podcast together. We started the podcast 30 Minutes in the New Testament that uh, that we do every week, and then and that led to writing together. And so it's... Really, I mean, we've been doing stuff together 
I don't know how long's it been now, Dan? Like three, four years? I mean, it's just yeah. been pretty, pretty. Yeah, constant. Been, I mean, we've been doing stuff together pretty, pretty solidly since the end of 2015, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, what you just got into there, uh, both of you, is one of the reasons I wanted to invite you onto uh, this podcast. Is um, when you mentioned the fact that that preaching tends to be a um, I mean, that is in, in a lot of senses, that's that people come to church, they're like, okay, someone authoritatively is going to tell me what scripture says. And then a lot of reformational truths don't even show up in the preaching any longer. We, in a sense, like you said, we've lost what we reclaimed. And I think there's certain areas of scripture that are mo- more notoriously bad for that. The, the Ten Commandments, uh, mm-hmm. the Beatitudes, uh, the parables. And this fall, um, even sh- starting actually this weekend, I'm launching into a series on the parables. And I've been planning this since last year because I thought, you know, most people approach the parables, I think, in a way that makes them out to be the heroes instead of Jesus out to be the heroes way too often. Um, and so Definitely. as I was thinking through the parables, I thought, okay, I, I want to teach you parables. I show up at um, the Mockingbird Conference in New York City. We all run into each other there. And I see that you guys are doing a workshop on the parables. Now, this shows you how much I've been paying attention. I didn't know that you guys had written a book on the parables. And so I thought, oh, I'm just going to go to your workshop. And I sat in the workshop and there was a moment when I think it was you, Eric, where you were um, sharing on that that simple, tiny little um, uh, parable in, in in Matthew 13, the pearl of great price. And for the first time in my hearing, I heard someone not make that parable about something they had to do. And I turned to the guy I was with and I said, that is what is missing in the teaching of the parables. And so um, before we even get talking about the parables, which is what, really what I want to do, um, I want to have you just share a little bit about that parable. I'm going to read the parable and I want you just to riff. I didn't warn you about this, but Eric, tell me, talk to us about Matthew 13. Let me read the parable. Um, and then just tell me where you feel people get tripped up. And I think this is going to be a good segue into our series this weekend. I'm not even going to teach this parable um, over the course of the next couple of months, but you get to teach it right now. It basically says this in Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Really simple, couple verses, but so misinterpreted. Talk about that parable for a second. Well, I think the the typical interpretation of those two very similar stories is that is is the man in the story represents you, represents me. And we come across the kingdom of God. We come across Jesus. We come across salvation. We come across heaven, whatever, however it's interpreted, being the pearl and the treasure. And then what we are called to do is give up everything we have in order to get it. And so the usual way these parables are preached is this parable is teaching you if you don't give up everything, then you do not have the treasure of the kingdom. And so the parable is then turned into something that uh, really kind of gets you feeling very uncertain because if anybody's honest, they know 
they probably haven't given up everything. Like there's still stuff that they're struggling with. There's still sin that they're struggling with. And so the parables are used to, in this sense, make people feel very insecure about their standing with God. However, contextually, we have no reason to believe that the man in the parable is actually us. As a matter of fact, we have all the reason in the world contextually to believe that the man is Jesus. Well, that changes everything. Because if the man in the parables is Jesus, then the treasure and the pearl, well, that's us. And he indeed did give up everything. He's the one who gave up everything to have his church. He's the one who literally sacrifices all he has to have us as his own. And so that, of course, changes the entire meaning of the parable, and it becomes this parable of great encouragement, great comfort for us, uh, rather than something that gets us feeling very insecure and lacking assurance. And again, I don't interpret it that way just because it feels better. I interpret it that way because contextually it makes more sense. And when you did that at the workshop, just pretty much, I don't know if you have that memorized from when you were doing the workshop, I... Like I, I turned to the guy with me and I said, that's the gospel. And do you think that there is a common thread uh, that is maybe unique to humankind or maybe it's unique to our Western world right now in how we read the parables that causes us to miss those obvious interpretive principles in the passage like one of the things just the fact that in in every one of those yeah in every one of those parables in Matthew 13 um, Jesus is he's the one who owns the field right so he's the yeah. or, or God God's the father even in the in the 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 parables of the prodigal son so there's no reason to believe he's not in this one but what is it about our culture that causes us to miss that obvious interpretive stance well i i i i'm I'm not even sure that it's unique to our culture but maybe it's just increasing in our culture or it's heightened in our culture but i i mean i think that we've been trained specifically in american theology to really build theology on what we do and what we don't do i mean we're sort of the center of the story. We're used to being the center of the story in so many other aspects of our life. We like to think of our lives as like a movie, and uh, you know we're the, we're the central character, and everybody else is the supporting cast around us. And this is not true, but that's I mean I do it. I I think a lot of us do that because we're and so we come to the parables with that mindset too. And think, okay, this is telling me how to live my life. This is telling me what I need to do. This is giving me my marching orders for Monday morning. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the pulpit uh, after I've gotten done preaching, Pastor, I want something that I can take with, to work with me on Monday morning. And I'm like, well, all I got for you is Jesus. You know, I, 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 if you're looking for like the practical steps in that kind of thing, that tends to be the way that a lot of preaching is done. It's all about the practical steps for you to take with you to work on Monday morning rather than the forgiveness of sins won for you by Christ alone on the cross. You know, I, I sent the, um, this, the, the breakdown of the parables that we're preaching this fall in our church to all the teachers because we have multiple preachers uh, preaching in our different venues. And one of the points that I, I gave them, I said, here's a couple things I want you to really think about when you're preaching this. And one of them... Um, was if, if Jesus doesn't apply the parable, 
don't feel that you have to. Like every bone in your body <laughs> is going to want you to apply it. But sometimes it's okay to leave it hanging a bit. And, and, and uh, by no means, if you're going to apply it, do you do an application that goes against what Jesus applies? Because every once in a while, he'll tell us, this is what it means. And if he does, yeah. great, stick with mm-hmm. that. But a lot of times he doesn't, which is, it's almost as, I mean, I think the, the parable of the soils is very clear that part of the purpose of him teaching parables was to, um, to obfuscate. <laughs> it was yeah. to, uh, to, to hide and, and, and also to, to illuminate, to let people know. So what caused you guys to write this particular book about the parables? Because was it just that you um, wanted to write another book or was it, were you seeing something that caused you to want to jump into it? Uh, I, well, when I first hit Eric up to do it, it was partially because I had finished a sermon series on the parables um, previous, and it was a series that so many people had come up and said was so helpful to them. So it was it was very eye-opening to them. Like, man, I just never heard those stories talked about like that. And I heard so much of that that uh, I said, you know what? I think that a a lay level sort of commentary. So the, the title of the book is scandalous story, uh, scandalous stories, a sort of commentary on parables. So it's, it's kind of like a commentary, but not really like any, anybody could read it. And uh, so, yeah, so basically it was that. And, and I think it, it was also to be, and it has turned out to be this, that it is sort of a Bible study help or a sermon help to pastors as well. Um, because the tendency is, I mean, especially with stories. So we do this with Old Testament narrative, right? Like crazy. Um, and then we do it with parables because they're stories. And it's that we prefer narcissus over exegesis. This is just the way it is. Now, in layman's terms, you got to define okay, both. Okay, so narcissus is not a real, that's a made up thing that I just said. Uh, <laughs> but what it is, uh, exegesis, uh, 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 it's better just defined by, by telling you what exegesis is. Exegesis is pulling out what's in the text. You're exegeting it. So what is in it? You're taking the text and then you're pulling what's out, pulling out of it what is there. And by the way, Christ says what's there is Him. This is what Road to Emmaus. It's all, all in all the text. There I am. So the question, in all the law and all everything, the prophets. every shred of it. So what you should be doing when you approach a text is say, "Where's Jesus at?" And probably He's the main thing, right? Narcissus is where you say, "Where am I?" I'm probably the main thing. Where do I fit into this text? I, I I have to read, and this is reading yourself into the text. Now, eisegesis is reading things into the text, but I think it's worse than that. I think it's worse than just reading something yeah. you want into the text. I think we're narcissists, and we nar- and we're we narcissistically put things in the text. That's interesting. So Larry Osborne talks about the fact that, um, and so we're, we'll do a little pastor speak here for a second. That when we're preaching to our congregation. And, or when we're even teaching a Bible study or leading a life group, that most people are not going to hear what we have to say unless they have a need to know or a need to grow moment going on in their lives. And I think there's a sense in which that is very real. You can hear the same sermon or really good biblical truths over and over and not hear it until you need it. Um, but the fact that we need something desperately when we come to the text, we come to church, we come to the Bible study, and then um, to hear a pastor, like somebody's listening into us and going, well, crap, uh, those guys are now telling me that when I come to church, I shouldn't be um, looking for how this is going to help me in my life. Like, talk to the general person who is not a pastor, 
who now is thinking, oh, great, you guys are not going to be helpful to me, and maybe the Bible isn't very helpful to me. Well, because <laughs> that's going to be the objection, right? Because people, they, they, they come in, they're like, man, I, I, I got one guy in my church, he calls me coach. And I have yeah. a love-hate relationship with that phrase when he uses it. But um, of course. Uh, walk me through that. Well, so, so let, me, let me say this. I think, um, it, number one, there's a lot of preaching uh, you know, from our perspective. There is preaching from our perspective that, um, that is done so repetitively and not thoughtfully and ends up feeling like you're really not hitting somebody's real need. So I would say a lot of the time, the reason that is that people don't feel their real need is being met is because you haven't made them aware of how much they really need what you're giving. So you, it, it tends to be a failure of us in the pulpit for preaching a Instead of a law that has teeth in it that really shows us our need for saving, once again, every Sunday, we preach a law that's just gumming us to death and feels like it's not that big a deal. We don't feel the weight of our sin. We don't feel the need for a Savior. And so when the Savior is given to us, it's like, yeah, that's a nice thing. I'd save me too. You know, I'm a pretty good fella. You know, I mean, so we, <laughs> right. so we, don't, we don't feel the weight of how significant it is that that God has indeed come in Christ to save us. So that can be part of the problem. That said, we certainly have many, many passages in all of the scriptures that are indeed going to help us and that are indeed uh, going to exhort us and show us how we ought to live. I mean, that's, you can't, you wouldn't get away, you wouldn't want to say that that's not there. That's the second half of almost every epistle in the New Testament. But we do want to say that those exhortations and those, those calls for living can never be presented as the means by which one gains status or favor with God. And that is, I think, the, the problem that is so often given. And I think also these things tend to be divorced from what's good for your neighbor, and they tend to be confused with pleasing God. So what I mean is this, those exhortations that are given to us in the, in the epistles, for example, they're almost always related to serving our neighbor in very tangible ways. And so what it turns out to be is that I think what people often want the Bible to say is how do I get successful? How do I get, uh, you know, how do I make more money? How can I be a better father? This, that, and the other thing. And there is answers there, but it might be pointing you in a direction that you didn't expect it to point you. It tends to point you downward away from focusing on yourself and outward to focusing on the good of your neighbor. Yeah, I think I think that there's there's this thing where, I mean, if I'm just being honest like to the person that would say that, I mean, if I'm really being honest, do you really need the church to tell you that it's not a great idea to spend more money than you make? Do you really need the church to tell you that cheating on your wife's a bad idea? It's not going to turn out great. That freaking out on your kids is not the best way to, to rear them. Do you really need that? Or do you need the church to tell you that there's forgiveness for those things? And and I think at the end of the day, people a lot of times have, ex and we've conditioned them for this, they expect the church to do something that's not really in the church's job description. Uh, I, I the, the church is in the sin and grace business it's in the transgression and absolution business that's what it does it's not really in the self-help motivational speaking business that's not really what we do when all those all that self-help fails and when all that motivational speaking comes up short 
here comes a church to tell you that that too is is forgiven and that Christ has still got you and that you're still a child of God and he hasn't abandoned you despite you being a complete failure and not living up to never mind I mean yes of course God's standards but even your own I mean just walk around feeling like a bum because you haven't measured up to society's standards um and so uh, yeah there's some like we go through the proverbs and you know we could talk about you know how uh, it's not great to be a glutton and like what that'll where will you where you'll end up. I'm not sure that you need the church for that though. I think I think most people know that stuff already. And you can and they and I also think that the reason that young people are bailing out of the church is they know they can get that anywhere. They're like I don't need to get up on Sunday morning and miss out on brunch uh, be, to hear some guy tell me some stuff I can get at during a TED talk. Because truly, young people are saying, I need brunch. They are. They're like, I need brunch, brunch man. Thing. I need brunch. And I can listen. Dude, in New York City, that's that's my biggest yeah, dude. Really? Yeah, yeah, dude. You could be like, I, I, if I'm just trying to try to get like get some advice to like to how to have my life work out better, you, you really don't need the church for that. What you do need the church for is forgiveness of sins. All right. So I got two questions. Um, you guys can decide who's going to tackle which one. So I don't know if you're going to do rock, paper, scissors or how, how you're going to do this. But when it comes to approaching the parables, I'd like one of you to give uh, counsel, pastoral, shepherding counsel to your a person in the church reading the parables and saying, how do I read the parables as a layman in the church? Um, and one of you to give advice to a pastor preaching the parables. And it might be the same answer, um, but I, I, I'm curious if you guys have specific advice you'd give, because I'm, I'm speaking as a pastor, so what's going to happen is I'm going to, my congregation, I need you to talk to my congregation first, and then I need you to talk to me, because this weekend I'm going to preach on the parables. So one of you take each of those. Well, I, I'm, I'm almost certain that Dan will agree with my answer here, but ultimately, I mean, I think the answer is kind of the same for both, and that is... When you come to the parables, remember to look for the main character that is indeed Christ. Uh, try to not read the parables narcissistically, as Dan's defined that. Term. I love that, by the way. That's, yeah. that's I'm stealing that. <laughs> but try to read the parables in 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 their context and according to you know what's surrounding them. We always want to do that when we come to scripture. But remember that Jesus really did say he's the main character of the entire book. And so we're looking for what it's what it's telling us about Christ, what it's telling us about what he's done for us and what he's going to do for us. Uh, it will go a lot further for you if you do that rather than looking to the parables for, you know, tips for living and that sort of thing. They're really, I mean, remember the parables are almost unanimously got Jesus's way of trying to explain the kingdom of God to us. So it's God's kingdom being explained. So look for that. Look for God at the center rather than yourself. And Dan, you can add whatever you want to. Yeah, to I mean, it, it really is the, uh, the, the he, Jesus almost prefaces all the parables. Uh, and even the ones he don't, he doesn't, you can assume it's sort of like this as he prefaces so many of them like it, that this is how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God may be likened to this or the kingdom of God is like a blank. Um, and then what, what follows is either something about some radical, radical grace, uh, you know, some uh, laborers in the vineyard that, you know, some guy that, you know, works for five seconds and then gets like a full a full paycheck um, kind of parable. My favorite parable, yeah, by great. the way. It's great. Or a parable about some extreme judgment. That's, that's kind of how they break down, 
you know, there's some maybe mm-hmm. there's maybe a couple more things, but really you can split them into those two categories. Parables, they're all about the kingdom of God, and some of them are about uh, radical grace, and some of them are about how the judgment will work, uh, which both have to do with the kingdom of God. And and so you can read them kind of through that lens, and the grace ones are are kind of easier because you can be like, oh yeah, look at this is an ex- this is just a ridiculous. Uh, economic system that God God's going on here. It's just absurd. Like the wedding feast, uh, the parable, you know, the, the treasure in the field, all of these are just absurd uh, amounts of grace and forgiveness going on. Then uh, you have some stuff that's like pretty, you're like, dang, that's kind of scary. You know, uh, sheep and the goats kind of stuff. Um, you know, a parable of the talents. Uh, this is one that's taken out of context all the time where, you know, three guys are given different different talents and then the, they're told to go do business in the master's name. And then he returns and two of them are like, hey, I went and, you know, I, I made this much more. And the other guy's he's like, oh, that's great. And then, I, oh, I made this much more. Oh, that's great. Come on in. The other guy's like, I knew you were a hard man. You're a stern man. You you reap what you didn't sow. You gather where you didn't scatter seed. Here you take what is yours, and then he like throws this dude into hell. And you're like, well, that's that's pretty scary and rough. I better I better take whatever talent God's given me, and uh, and really use it. And it's like that's not at all what's going on here. Like what's happening is that the master gives three people a gift. They didn't earn it. They didn't do anything for it. He just gives it to them. He doesn't even tell them they have to make a profit. He just says go. Go do stuff in my name. And and sure enough, it increases. This one dude doesn't want the gift. He doesn't he never asked for it. He didn't want it. He hides it at the judgment. He throws it back in his face and says, How dare you? Uh, how dare you like give me this thing and make me responsible for it? I didn't want this. You and he says, This is the quote, you take what is yours. And what's happening in a parable like that is that he is taking the grace of God and saying, I don't want this. Uh, you're you're a bad person because you came around and reap what you didn't sow. Which, by the way, that's the gospel: Christ reaping what he didn't sow. He has reaped the the sins of the world. He has gathered what he did not scatter. And he said, "You can't go around just taking people's sin without them asking you to, and then giving out grace and forgiveness and your righteousness without me. I never wanted this in the first place. Throw it back in his face. Turns out that's the only way to go to hell." That's the way it happens. Like, and, and so even in that, you're like, okay, so how hard is it to go to hell? Well, you have to do this. You have to say, I don't want this thing. And you have to throw it back in his face. This is the, the judgment. The judgment <laughs> consists of the, of the uh, refusal to embrace the, this gift of, of grace and forgiveness and, and to look at God and say, no, what you've done is unjust. I want to stand in my own righteousness. Uh, that's, that's what it is. And so, um, the way that you read these things is really kind of in those categories where, where you're trying to figure out, is this about grace or is this about judgment? And then even reading the judgment ones, making sure that you know that because it's about the kingdom of God, it has to be about um, about God doing the saving because that's how the kingdom of God works. So there still can be no earning in these parables. Well, and, and even the way you described it, it was interesting. You, I, I, you you kept doing it. You kept saying grace, judgment, grace, judgment. And what was fascinating to me is I kept thinking judgment, grace, judgment, grace. Like here's you got these two categories. And aren't those the broad stroke uh, preaching themes, gospel themes in Scripture? You, yeah. because of your sin, you are judged, period. Yeah. That, that's, that's it. And, and there's grace. And 
It's judgment and grace. It's judgment and grace. That's the gospel. It's parenting. It's how we parent our kids. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I, it's, the, it's our life story. Just to add to your uh, follow up to your question earlier about, you know, what to look for. Man, the parables are great for finding law and gospel. They're some of the easiest places you can find uh, the, the results or the consequences of man's sin and what God has done to fix that problem. I mean, look for law and gospel in the parables, dear listener, if you're going to the parables, because that, that is huge. And that will cause you to get just what you're saying, Noel, both judgment and grace. Really, you can find it in every parable. You can find those yeah. things. And this is, and law and gospel is one of those theological categories when we're circling all the, back, all the way back around to the theology of the Reformation. This was a huge distinction that was made in the theology of the Reformation where— um, where you have the scriptures, you know, Luther would say that the entirety of the scriptures can be divided into two things, a word of law and a word of gospel. And what this, this isn't just the Ten Commandments law. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, so when you hear the, the law, what you're hearing is do this. So Luther would say uh, the law says do and it is never done. The gospel says believe this, it's done already. Right? So... Um, so the, the, as you as you look at the scriptures, this is how you break them down. This is a, this is like a primary hermeneutic that churches do not use hardly any, ever anymore. Where you're like, oh, is this telling me what to do? Well, that's the law, and it means it can't save me. Or is this telling me what God has done to save me? Oh, that's the gospel. Hmm. Well, gents, we could talk about this um, all day, and I would love to talk about this all day, but uh, we can't. So um, I am going to in the show notes. Uh, post to uh, your guys' uh, myriad of podcasts. I think you have at least a couple podcasts out there, as well as Christ Hold Fast. We talked about Mockingbird Ministries, um, 1517, um, and all of that. But um, I just appreciate you gents more than you can know, just from the, the day we met each other in awful, awful Florida, because I hate that place. Um, uh, It's it's the worst place in America. Um, But when we met in in Florida, from then on, uh, your your skill at standing for the gospel in a world of law um, and uh, the way that you uh, just have have postured grace has, has meant a ton to me and it's been enjoyable for me to we don't get enough time to hang out together but just um from afar watching your your ministries has been uh, a joy for me so thanks for all that you do for the glory of god and um the fame of jesus absolutely thanks for having us on man yeah had a great time man thank you so much 